the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. The woman said to Him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we have just sung, through Jesus Christ, You are our all in all. And so we come to You this morning, Lord, taking up our sin and confessing again that we are sinful and unclean Our righteousness is as filthy rags. And we ask that you would cleanse us. We thank you that you have cleansed us already through faith, through the advocate that we have before you, who is Jesus Christ, our righteousness. We take up again this morning our cross, the burdens that you have given us to bear, though painful, we know are a part of following your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we gladly bear them through your help. We take up our shame. The shame of believing a message that is weak and foolish in the eyes of the world. That your son became man and lived and died on a cross and was raised from the dead and is coming again. And though the world would scoff at us for believing and teaching and living according to what the Bible says, we know it's the truth and so we bear that shame. Father, we're thankful that you pick us up when we fall down. For a Savior who does not squelch the smoldering wick or break the bruised reed, we are thankful that when we are dry, you fill our cup. And we know that this text says this morning, your Son, Jesus Christ, promised that if this woman would come to him and ask for a drink, that he would give living water. And so we claim that promise, and we ask this morning that your Son who is standing at your right hand, that you would listen to Him interceding on our behalf and that in His name you would pour out upon us living water, that you would fill us and fill this place with your Holy Spirit who Jesus said is the living water. Father, pour your Spirit out on us this morning. Where there are those who are dead in their sins and don't know you, convict them of their sin and bring them to saving faith. Where there are those who are believers but are walking in unrighteousness, convict them of their sin, break them, cause them to be utterly dry and uncomfortable and unhappy until they turn again to drink of the living water. Father, where there are those who are depressed, discouraged, fearful, Father, pour on them Your Spirit and give them rejoicing and healing and hope and happiness and confidence through Your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray specifically for myself. 
I confess that I am nothing but a weak clay vessel that you have filled with an immeasurable treasure of your gospel. And I pray, Father, that you would, not according to my merits, but according to the merits of your Son, Jesus Christ, gift me with everything that I need to preach your word powerfully and authoritatively and clearly and faithfully and in a way that would help your people, that would shame your enemies, that would bring glory to your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a friend, Kendall Adams, who is the pastor of Burlington Baptist Church in Burlington, Iowa. And one of the things I've noticed about Kendall is that whenever we went to any sort of gathering, whether it be a conference or a fellowship meal or some kind of gathering at another church, a convention, Kendall could always be found at the edges of where people were gathering, usually talking to the person that no one else was talking to. I noticed in Kendall a pattern of intentionally seeking out the person that nobody else was seeking out and engaging them in conversation. And Kendall had a way of finding people who weren't just on the fringe of the group, but tended to be on the fringe of society. People who were poor, people that even other Christians didn't want to fellowship. That's because Kendall was a lot like Jesus. And I noticed that in Kendall as I got to be good friends with him. And this morning, I want to look again at how Jesus does evangelism. My goal is twofold for us. First of all, I want you, as I said last week, to see who Jesus is and to see what gift He has to offer so that you can believe in Him and by believing in Him, have eternal life. And second of all, I want you to see how Jesus does evangelism because He is the Master Evangelist. And I want us to learn to do evangelism not more like some earthly teacher that we've seen telling us how to do evangelism, but be more like Jesus in how we spread the message of Jesus. Because I think He not only has a good message, which is the primary point of the passage, but He has a good example for us to follow. But before we go any further, we might ask the question, what do we mean by evangelism? Because I've been talking about evangelism, but you might be thinking a thousand different things when you hear the word evangelism. Evangelism to you might be go out on Thursday night in your suit and your tie and knock on strangers' doors and give them a track. Or evangelism might be trying to strike up that conversation with the guy next to you on the airplane. Evangelism to you might just be giving your neighbor, uh, you know, raking his lawn and never saying a word to him. What is evangelism? J.I. Packer in his classic book that you should all read, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, offers this definition of evangelism. Evangelism is just preaching the gospel, the evangel. It is a work of communication in which Christians make themselves mouthpieces for God's, God's message of mercy to sinners. And this message consists of the gospel of Christ, of Him crucified, the message of man's sin and God's grace, of human guilt and divine forgiveness, of new birth and new life through the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is exactly what Jesus is doing in John chapter 3 and 4. He is being the mouthpiece of the Father in explaining to people their sin, God's gift, the need for new birth through the Holy Spirit. And so evangelism is simply telling people who Jesus is, 
What God the Father has done for us and offers to us in and through Jesus, why we need that gift, and how we ought to respond. Who Jesus is, what God the Father has done and what He offers, why we need that, and how we should respond. That's evangelism. Evangelism is not um, a spiritual conversation that lacks those facts. It is not an apologetic conversation that defends creationism or pro-life conversation. It's not a defense of the inerrancy of Scripture. It's not a testimony about something good God did for you apart from the Gospel. It's not building a relationship. All these things are good, but they are not evangelism if the evangel, the message of the Gospel, is not proclaimed. And so evangelism requires not just our actions, but our words. We can display the Gospel in our actions, but we cannot do evangelism without telling people these things. Which is where Jesus takes every conversation He has to the heart of this matter. As a review of last week, some of the things we saw in Jesus, biblical evangelism will sometimes result in persecution and opposition. People are opposed to the truth. And they persecute messengers of the truth. And as we saw, God uses those things to spread the Gospel and to make it clear. Biblical evangelism is tiresome work. Jesus was wearied from His travels, and His travels were due to Him going someplace to take the Gospel there. Being a biblical evangelist will wear you out. Biblical evangelism involves taking the Gospel to every tribe and language and people and nation. As He was taking the Gospel to Samaria, and then to Gentiles after he's already preached it to the Jews. And not only that, but biblical evangelism involves crossing ethnic, cultural, gender, social, and religious boundaries in order to reach every class with the Gospel. The Gospel is not for a certain social class, a certain gender class, a certain ethnic class. It is for everyone from every people group on earth. And doing evangelism like Jesus means we will cross uncomfortable boundaries to get the Gospel to uncomfortable people. Well, to begin with, in verses 7-9, through 9, one of the things we'll see is biblical evangelism involves talking to those God brings across our path. That might be startling. But doing evangelism involves talking to people. And talking to those that God brings into your life. Look at how Jesus does this. So far, Jesus has been forced by the scrutiny of the Pharisees to leave Judea and to head north to Galilee, forcing Him to go through Samaria. And at noon, about the sixth hour of the day, the hottest hour of the day, Jesus is tired from His travels, so He sits down by a well. His disciples go into town to buy some food to eat, and He's resting there at Jacob's well. And a woman from Samaria approaches the water to draw water. And what does Jesus do when she shows up? Does Jesus say, oh, this woman, you can tell from the way she looks and from the fact that she has to come at noon and none of the other women will associate with her is obviously bad company. And if I stay here sitting at the well, the disciples might think I'm being flirtatious and be like um, Isaac and Jacob trying to find a wife at the well. So I need to kind of just find an excuse and run away from this woman because I don't want to talk to her. Jesus initiates a conversation. And He asks her, 
give me something to drink. And then he steers that into spiritual conversation. Jesus talked to those people that God brought across his path. And so one of our first points of application might simply be this. Biblical evangelism involves initiating conversations. Jesus found a way to connect with people. So when you're out in public, let me ask you this question. When you're in the hospital waiting room, or when you're in the line at the grocery store, or when you're paying for your gas at the gas station, is your goal to avoid all eye contact and avoid any conversation that might occur with these heathens and to get out of the situation as quickly as possible? Or is it to learn their name, to engage them in the conversation, and to try to point them to their spiritual need and the gift that God has offered to them through Jesus Christ. What do you do with the modern day well? With your water cooler at work? I think a lot would happen evangelistically if we would simply have a mindset that I am going to be intentional at smiling at people, asking them their name, and talking to them. And see where God allows that conversation to go. She's shocked. This woman is shocked that Jesus would be friendly with her. Jesus breaks taboos. In speaking with this woman, Jesus is breaking a number of rules of Jewish piety. As I shared last week, first of all, she is a Samaritan. And Jews did not share their dishes with Samaritans. They did not fellowship with Samaritans. If you fellowship with them, you could become unclean. And Jesus, having nothing to get water out of the well with, says to this woman, give me a drink. I want to drink out of your Samaritan water jar. As I said last week, the Samaritans and the Judeans were people who were divided socially and ethnically and religiously by hundreds of years of hatred that were cultivated by religious animosity. And Jesus just walks right through all of that and talks to this woman. He engages her in a conversation. Furthermore, she's a woman. In verse 27, when she comes back, or when the disciples come back from town, they marvel, it says, that he was talking with a woman. He's talking with a woman. Why does that make them marvel? Well, some, but not all Jewish thought at the time, taught that for a rabbi to spend time talking to a woman, even his wife was a waste of time because it was a distraction from learning the Torah and it could lead to him going to hell. So talking with your own wife was a dangerous thing that could lead you to hell in the mind of the rabbis. In fact, some rabbis said that teaching their daughter the Scripture was as worthwhile as selling her into prostitution. And here is Jesus. And what is He doing at the well? Talking to this woman. And not only that, He teaches this woman, doesn't He? I mean, if you compare His teaching with Nicodemus, and who's Nicodemus? He's a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. He's the teacher of Israel. And Jesus teaches this Samaritan woman in the same way that He teaches this high-standing Jew. Well, what application does this have? For the Christian church. You ever ask yourself, why is it that there are women sitting in here next to men on Sunday morning listening to sermons? Why are women in our Bible studies? 
Why are women in our uh, Sunday school classes? Why do they get to learn the Scripture? Because they can learn. Because God gave them minds and they're intelligent and they're human beings created in the image of God. And this Jewish stipulation that said women are not worth investing in intellectually was wrong. And so that's why we read Paul say in 1 Timothy 2.11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. How does our culture respond to that when we hear let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness? Submissiveness. Quietness. There's that Paul again, beating down women. He's just, he's just folding into the Jewish pattern. He's caving to the cultural expectation to tell these women to be quiet. Is Paul caving to the culture? What did I just say the culture was with rabbis? To teach a woman is to waste your time and go to hell. And what does Paul say? Let a woman learn. That's countercultural. Paul is not caving to his culture. He's saying women have a place alongside men in learning. And he gets that example from Jesus Christ. Furthermore, as he points out, she is not just, put those two things together, a Samaritan and a woman, she is a Samaritan woman. I saw last week that Jewish leaders, shortly after the time of Jesus, would put into code a law that said that a, uh, a Samaritan woman was perpetually unclean. They could never be cleansed. And to touch one or have anything to do with one would make you unclean. And so here is Jesus asking this woman, who we find out later on is a, is a habitually sexually immoral woman. She is a serial fornicator. She's with her sixth sexual partner. And Jesus, she's, a, she's an outcast among the Samaritans. The Samaritans are outcasts, and she's an outcast among them. And Jesus says, I want to drink from your water jar. And I want to teach you about what I have brought that can satisfy your deepest needs. You see, Jesus is not hindered. Jesus is not hindered by purity scruples that originate in man and not in the Bible. Let me read that again. Jesus is not hindered by purity scruples that originate in man and not in the Bible. Herman Ritterboss wrote, It is as though he were oblivious of the boundaries and barriers that alienate and separate people from one another. Jesus crosses the great divide of ethnic and cultural and gender and social and religious boundaries to talk to anyone he can about himself. About the only thing that keeps Jesus from ministering to people is self-righteous hypocrisy, which we'll see when he deals with the Pharisees. William Barclay wrote, Here is God, loving the world, not in theory, but in action. Jesus knows the gospel he knows who it's for, and He is putting it into practice. And that's what we must do. What does this reveal about who Jesus is? Again, it shows us that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world, which is what we learn in verse, verse 42. The Samaritan village says, this is indeed the Savior of the world. And that's the point of this passage. Jesus didn't come to be the Savior of Jews, but of Samaritans. He didn't come to be the Savior of men only, but of women. He didn't come to be the Savior of respectable, free, rich, suit-and-tie, church-going, nice citizens, 
but of the despised and the outcast and the poor and the slave. And if that's how Jesus acted, then we should too. Jesus is aware of who He is. He's aware of why God sent Him. And He applies the gospel to this woman by talking to her and treating her with dignity. Jesus treats her as a human being created in the image of God. And He treats her with dignity. And He talks to her. And He offers her the gospel. Someone worth fellowshipping with, at least on a social level. It's interesting to compare and contrast the way that Jesus speaks to social, moral outcasts who are looked down upon by everybody with the way that He spoke to the spiritually elite who love to look down on everybody else. When this social outcast who is a moral failure comes across Jesus' path, He says, give me a drink. And He talks to her. But when the Pharisees who claim to be the spiritual elite and love to go around looking down on everyone else come across Jesus' path, He says, you hypocrites. You whitewashed tombs. You're beautiful on the outside, but you are full of dead men's bones. Jesus had no place for self-righteousness. He honored humility. Here's another application from the example of Jesus. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Savior of young and old, of rich and poor, of Jew and non-Jew, of male and female, of slave and free, of outwardly moral and outwardly immoral. And therefore, efforts should be made to take the gospel to each of these. We should never say that we are a church who exists to reach out to the white-collar community. We are a church that exists to take the gospel to all the peoples of the world and every class within those peoples. Because that's what our Savior did. Biblical evangelism involves talking to all sorts of people and treating them with dignity. So let me ask you again, do you, like Jesus, make efforts at forming relationships with everyone regardless of their appearance or their class or their dress or their gender or their religious background or their social stigma? Do you, are you intentional about forming relationships with them so that you can share Jesus with them? Practical question here. When you go to a restaurant... How do you treat your waiter or your waitress? Do you treat them like a human being or like a servant with no name? When I met my friend David Ward, we, the first time we got to know each other, we went to a restaurant. And when the waitress came to the table, he said, I'm sorry, I can't see your name tag. What's your name? And she kind of was startled. And he said, I, I just want to treat you like a person. And so she told him his, her name, and then from then on out, through the rest of the meal, whenever she'd come back to the table, he would call her by name, and he would ask her questions about herself. Are you a student? Where do you go to church? Do you have a family? He treated her like someone who was a human being, and not just some slave who had to earn their cheap Christian 5% tip. And we've had lots of interactions in restaurants. And whether he's ordering tea or whether he's ordering a meal, David always asks their name, calls them by name, and treats them like they're important. And could you imagine the impact we could have on the city? I don't know how much our church eats out. You know, it depends on how much money you have. But what if every one of us, when we went to restaurants, asked the waiter or waitress their name? And then said, you know, we're really glad to meet you. And just throughout the course of the meal, we're friendly and engage them. 
And when they brought us back our bill, said, you know what? Do you have a church that you go to? Just curious. We're from Northbrook Baptist Church in Boyson Road. And if you ever want to join us on Sunday morning, we'd love that. You know, you might not get the opportunity to share the gospel, do evangelism with them. But when that 19-year-old waitress who's a freshman at Coe College wakes up in her dorm room some morning and she's just slept with the sixth guy of that semester and she's wondering how she's made such a moral wreck of her life and wondering why she keeps getting used by these men and she has her head in her hands and is saying, what's going to happen with my life? What has gone wrong? She might say, those people at Northbrook treated me like a person and maybe they could help me. And maybe she'd come and get to hear the gospel. Or maybe we could just sort of say, yeah, that's what I want, another refill. Going back to the kitchen. I read a good article a while back about interacting with street people who ask for money. The author lived in a big city where he was approached frequently by people every day on the streets to the point where he couldn't just give out money. And so he adopted a personal policy where he would tell the people that he say, I have... You know, I, he, well, he said, first of all, when a person approached him asking for money, he didn't answer their question. The first thing he said is, what's your name? Man, you know, scruffy, unshowered, unshaved, torn up, smelly clothes. What's your name? The man responds, my name's Dave. Hi, Dave. Reach out his hand, shake his grubby, germy hand. You know, I'm really glad to have met you. I have a personal policy of not giving out money on the street, but you know what? I would love to take you to a restaurant and sit down with you and buy you a meal and just talk to you. How do you view homeless people? As the scum of the earth that you wish someone would just go clean up so you don't have to deal with? Or do you shake their hand, call them by name, and tell them that they matter and you would love to invest in them if they would allow you to? That's what Jesus did. He didn't care who looked down on him at Panera Bread because the guy he was sitting with stunk. He didn't just give the woman some money preferring money to a meal so that she would go away and he wouldn't have to deal with her anymore. He engaged her. He ministered to her. Avoiding such people is not Christian because it's not like Christ. Let me ask you another question. Thanksgiving and Christmas are approaching. And in our culture, in our society, Thanksgiving and Christmas means you have a banquet. You have a big dinner in your home with all the trimmings and all the fixings and you get the best china out, you decorate the home, who are you going to invite to your Thanksgiving dinner? Who are you going to invite to your Christmas dinner? I know that some of us will be going out of town, we don't plan the dinner, we don't get to choose who to invite, it's not our home. But if it's in your home, who are you going to invite to your dinner or your banquet? And will the Bible, will Jesus in John 4 influence that? How would John 4 influence who you invite to your Thanksgiving meal in a couple weeks? Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When you invite your family and your friends and your rich relatives, they repay you with a comfortable atmosphere sometimes. Or they invite you back next year when it's their rotation to host the meal. And you get your payment. 
But Jesus says when you invite a Samaritan woman to your house for Thanksgiving dinner, she can't pay you back and it will be costly. But God will pay you back with a rich reward on the day of resurrection. Now I know at the Lord's Supper, Jesus invited His friends. So obviously Jesus invited His friends to meals sometimes. So it's not an absolute prohibition here. You figure it out what Jesus wants you to do in your home on Thanksgiving. But ask yourself the question, you know, there are people at your workplace who might not have a home to go back to. They might be internationals. There might be people in our congregation who have no family in the area and they're poor and they're going to sit at home alone and they can never invite you back into their home and repay you. But it'll make it uncomfortable. It won't be like it's always been. Yeah, the gospel has a way of doing that with life. Making it uncomfortable and shaking us up and changing us. But it brings great glory to Jesus when we act like He did. So once again, theology is practical. Our practice, what we do as a church and as Christians in our life and in our evangelism flows from our understanding of the gospel. If you don't study doctrine, you don't know how to live. If you don't study the gospel and who it's for, you don't know how to live. Jesus is living out His understanding of the gospel and we should too. 1 Corinthians 1 says that God chose the foolish and the weak and the low and the, the despised in the world. And so we should too. James chapter 2 tells us that God chose the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Luke chapter 14 tells us that Jesus Christ has invited the poor, the crippled, the blame, and the lame, the lame to feast at His banqueting table. If Jesus did that with His banqueting table, can we do any less with ours? As though we have some right to a higher standard than Jesus? Brothers and sisters, we are born sinful and unclean. We are rebels against God in everything that we think and we say and we do. We do not love God with our whole heart. We do not love our neighbor as ourselves. We deserve to go to hell. And God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into this world and He humbled Himself and He became a man. And He lived a perfect life. And then He died under God's wrath on the cross bearing the penalty that we deserve. And then God raised Him from the dead. And when Jesus ascended to God's right hand, Jesus poured out the living water of the Holy Spirit and He has called us to Himself. And when we trusted in Jesus Christ, God the Father said, He is clean. You are righteous. You are adopted as My sons. And therefore, you can sit at My family banqueting table. And Jesus Christ washed us clean and called us His bride and said, come to My wedding feast. We were whores like the woman at the well, only worse because we had rejected God. And Jesus Christ brought these whores to His banqueting table. If Jesus would do that with the scum of the earth, me, how can we refuse to do that with the scum of Cedar Rapids or Africa? We can't and still be Christians. Well, we decide to talk to these people then. 
We're going to start talking to people God brings across our path. We're going to go out into the highways and byways and call the lame and the sick and the poor, the destitute, the ugly. What do we tell them? What do we tell them now? What's the message? Well, that's what Jesus does. And what we'll see is biblical evangelism focuses on showing people the gift of God and the gift bearer. The gift of God and the gift bearer. We show them what God has to offer and we show them the one who gives them what God has to offer. That's what Jesus does in this passage. The woman is shocked. She says, how can you ask me for a drink of water? Because Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans. And Jesus says to her, if you knew two things, you'd ask me for a drink. What are the two things she needs to know? If you knew the gift of God... And two, if you knew who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And she responds by saying, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get that living water from? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. She wonders, how are you going to get water out of this well? Now, she's unspiritual, so she can't discern spiritual things. She insists on a strictly wooden, literal interpretation of Jesus' words. And so she thinks he's talking about literal water. And the well today, Jacob's well, is over 100 feet deep. You can't just dip your jug into this well. You need a very long rope. And it would have been deeper in Jesus' day 2,000 years ago. It's one of the deepest wells in the region. And the woman says, you don't have anything to draw water with. Even Jacob, Jacob, to get to the water in that spring, he had to dig a hole over a hundred feet deep. Then he had to build a little wall around the top of it, a well, and then some kind of structure so a rope could be lowered down and bring water back up. Even Jacob, Jacob had to have some means of getting the water out. And Jesus says, I can give you water. And she says, are you greater than Jacob? He required a rope and a bucket. You've got nothing. Are you greater than Jacob? She has to conclude he's either A, a fraud, or he's greater than the greatest, one of the greatest of the patriarchs. This woman's asking a question that's more important than she realizes. And it's important for evangelism, especially evangelism to Jews. Abraham and his son Isaac and Jacob were three of the greatest men in the history of Israel. Jacob was renamed by God Israel. And the scripture says, Jacob of the Lord, Jacob I love. The scripture says God particularly loved Jacob. Jacob wrestled with God and he prevailed. He was given the promises of God from Abraham. There is hardly anyone in Jewish history as great as Jacob. And could Jesus possibly think that he is greater? This has implications for how you view the Old Testament. Where does Jesus fit in in line with all these Jewish figures? Well, what we see is the theme of John's Gospel. Jesus surpasses and supersedes the figures and institutions of the Old Covenant. In chapter 1, John tells us that Jesus is greater than Moses because He brings grace and truth where Moses only brought law. In chapter 2, Jesus has told us that He is the he brings the wine of the kingdom that surpasses Jewish rites of purification. Chapter 2, we read that Jesus has come as the living temple of God to surpass the stone temple. In chapter 3, Jesus is greater than the bronze serpent that Moses held up in the wilderness because Moses could offer you healing from snake bite, But Jesus gives eternal life. Jesus is greater than John the Baptist who is greater than the prophets. In chapter 8, the Jews ask Jesus, are you greater than Abraham, our father, who died? And Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and he was glad. 
before Abraham was, I am. Throughout John's Gospel, John takes us and Jesus takes us through Jewish institution after Jewish institution and shows us that Jesus is greater than everything that has come before. And therefore, we should forsake all to follow Him. So the question, are you greater than our father Jacob? Jesus says, yes. And the way that He shows that He's greater than Jacob is by comparing the water that Jacob gave with the water that He can give. He says, everyone who drinks of, the, of this water, everyone who drinks of the water that Jacob gave you is going to get thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In other words, he says, yeah, I'm greater than Jacob. Jacob gave you some earthly water. And you have to come back day after day after day after day to drink from this well or else you will die. But the water that I can give you, if you'll drink of it, it'll produce life in you that will never end. You'll never be thirsty again. That's the gift. I would give you living water. And I can give it, Jesus says. What is He talking about here? What is the living water? First of all, in verse 10, we read the gift of God is the living water. This woman needs to know what the gift of God is. And the gift of God is living water. Well, what does He mean by that? In John chapter 8, at the Feast of Booths, Jesus will say, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John writes, Now He said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in Him would receive. So the living water is the Holy Spirit that is poured out into the hearts of God's people. And this confirms that the living water Jesus offers is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Twice in the Old Testament, the Lord is called the fountain of living waters. Listen to this indictment of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 2. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. So in other words, I want all the heavens, all the stars, the moon, and the sun, I want you all to look at this and I want you to be appalled. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Because My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken Me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. That is what sin is. Sin is saying, here is God. He is a fountain of living water that is overflowing. And seeing that, I'm going to go over here with my shovel and I'm going to dig a hole and I'm going to dig by my own works, my own cistern that can't even hold any water and try to satisfy my needs from there. Jeremiah 17 says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake You will be put to shame. Those who turn away from You shall be, shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. It's interesting, the Lord calls Himself the fountain of living water. He doesn't call Himself the living water itself. God the Father is the source of this living water, who Jesus says is the Holy Spirit. So we believe the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Even though this is an eternal trinity, one God in three persons with equal essence, existing for eternally, eternity, but there is submission among these equals. So God is the fountain. God the Father is the source of the Holy Spirit. And who is the giver of that gift? How do you get that gift? 
Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, okay, that's living water, and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him. So Jesus is the gift bearer. God's gift is this Holy Spirit that regenerates us, that cleanses us, that applies the work of the cross to our hearts and our lives. And Jesus is the one who gives us that gift. Jesus tells His disciples in John 16, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Because if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. Because when Jesus ascends to the Father's right hand, He pours out the Spirit that is given to Him. Our speaker this weekend encouraged us to read the Scripture with Trinitarian glasses on. We, we, we as Christians oftentimes say in our statements of faith that we believe in the Trinity, but then we live like functional Unitarians, like there's no such thing as a Trinity. And he said, he made a comment, he said, without the Trinity, there is no salvation. Do you see that in this verse? God the Father is the one who gives the gift. God the Son is the one who brings the gift to those who ask for it. And the Holy Spirit is the gift that produces life in those who drink from Him. How do you receive the gift? You would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. For a person to be motivated, they have to see two things. First, they have to see what the gift of God is, His own life-giving Spirit. And second, they have to see who Jesus is, the bearer of the gift and the dispenser of the Spirit. There is a fountain flowing with eternal life. And it's free to everyone who will ask Jesus for it. But first of all, you have to realize you're thirsty, which is why Jesus, and we'll look at this in a couple weeks, points out to the woman that she is a sinner. If you don't know that you're a sinner, you will never know that you need living water. And so if you don't confront people in their sin when you do evangelism and in your relationships, you will not help them go to Jesus to drink. You will help them be comfortable in their sin and die and go to hell. What we need to show people is that they are thirsty, that, they, that God is offering a gift, and that if they will ask Jesus for it, He will give it to them. So my question to you this morning is, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty for the living water? What well have you been drinking from? You might be here this morning and you've been hewing out your own well. Maybe a sexual immorality like this, this woman. You've been having an affair. You've been looking at pornography on the computer. You've been lusting in your mind. Maybe you've been sucking the juice of, great, of the grapevine gossip and slander and it's just turned the, your teeth on edge and made you bitter. What, what have you been drinking from? Where have you been trying to find your satisfaction? Is it from Jesus Christ and the water that He has to offer? I want to encourage you this morning, if you're not a believer, to go to Jesus Christ after this sermon is done and pray and ask Jesus to give you this living water. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins. Ask the Father to forgive you in Jesus' name and to fill you with His Spirit and to change you. And let's do that as a church. Let's ask that God the Father as a church would give Northbrook Baptist this living water. That He would pour into our hearts this gift of the Holy Spirit that wells up into eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so far as anything eternal or important depended upon me this morning, there will be nothing but barrenness and dryness.
But Father, I pray that You would use the truths that I've spoken in my weakness and inabilities and pour Your Spirit out and apply them to our hearts and our minds. Make us thirsty for You and give us the gift of Yourself. In Jesus' name, Amen.